Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Good morning. Welcome to the Vince Coakley Radio Program, our Tuesday edition. Hope all is well in your world. A lot of things to talk about, covering a number of subjects we will delve into quite a bit during the course of the broadcast today. I will tell you, we have, I guess you can call it, you may be able to call it an expanded Transformation Tuesday segment. A good friend of mine will join us with, I think, some really powerful words about where we are and some values that we very much need to embrace now more than ever. That's coming up in the next hour. Also, an incredible testimony. I don't know if it was written as such, but it's really kind of a challenge about how we engage the world in which we live from someone who's come at this thing called life from several different perspectives, it will blow your mind when you find out about this woman's journey and where she has landed now. It is really cool stuff. So lots of inspiration in store for you today. Believe it or not, some good news on inflation that's out. It's some consolation to the challenging financial environment that many are finding right now. Having said that, Democrats not excited about one of the favorite words the Biden campaign tries to use to convince people their lives are so much better now. We could be days away from a deal to get at least some of the hostages in Israel free. We'll tell you what is under discussion right now. And closer to home, the mail. One of the first mega regional distribution centers opening up right here near Charlotte. And it brings me to the question, how many of you use snail mail? I was just thinking on that this morning. And I'll be very curious to hear how many of you are still living in the Stone Age. Just kidding. But I begin with a really cool, inspiring story. Before I go into this, we will have plenty of inspiration during the course of the broadcast, really from beginning to end. But I just want to put a thought to you. If I can say one thing has, one message has impacted me more than anything else in the last 15 years, it's one word, and that is presence. As you know, I have been through a number of, uh, let's just say, life adventures over the last 50 years as it relates to church, as it relates to business and work and family. All of this has just been, uh, you have no idea 
<laughs> what has been going on over the last 15 years or so. But if I can distill things down to what really has made a difference, it's two things. Well, it's one thing manifest in two. And you'll understand this. That word presence, for me, the importance of understanding God's 24-7 presence and living in that. And the second thing is, as it relates to our relationships with each other, putting an accent on that presence. So first off, I'm cultivating an awareness of God's presence in my life. And the second thing is, I'm trying to appropriate his presence in my life and as I engage other people so that I can be a blessing wherever I go. And and there's an awareness that he's there. This, this is so significant. I, I don't want to just brush by this. And you'll understand why I'm mentioning this before the, stir, the first story that I share with you. Because I think a lot of times because of our uh, what do we call it? Sacred, secular, divide mentality. You know, we have this idea in mind, okay, you know, church is on Sunday, and the rest of the week we just do secular stuff. Um, that's not how I view life. I believe he's involved in everything, not just Sunday morning, but throughout the week. Every conversation, interaction, relationship, work, so, with this in mind, we have this wonderful story reported by Breitbart. God is good. Prayer saves man from axe-wielding carjacker in St. Louis. A St. Louis man did something unexpected when he found himself in a dangerous situation. Police say his decision to pray and not let fear overtake him resulted in an axe-wielding suspect leaving him alone after an attempted carjacking in the city's downtown area. The suspect, identified as Romel Taylor, charged with first-degree attempted robbery and felony robbery regarding two unrelated incidents. Authorities are holding Taylor without the possibility of bond. Taylor accused of holding up a large axe when approaching the victim who was getting out of his car. When the suspect allegedly told the man to give him his keys, the victim did something quite surprising. He asked Taylor if he would consider praying with him there in the street. See, I love this. When he began lifting up a prayer, Taylor turned and walked away. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? <laughs> oh, my goodness. This is actually recorded on surveillance video. Police took Taylor into custody several days later after he allegedly robbed a bank and carjacked another driver. Social media users quick to comment on the story. One person writing, Amen. God is good all day, every day. The power of prayer and faith, another user exclaimed. According to Christianity.com, prayer offers people numerous benefits. And the site 
describes it as engaging in communication with God. Uh, yes. The site says prayer changes our focus, brings us closer to God, helps others, helps calm the one praying and those listening. And it could also bring change to circumstances. We've certainly seen the familiar phrase, prayer changes things, is true. Sometimes the things that change are circumstances, while other times we are the thing that prayer changes. The site adds the benefits of prayer can't be exhausted. If you have any doubt, if you have any doubt at all, there's a man in St. Louis who would like to tell you his story. Very cool, isn't it? <laughs> Still to come on the broadcast, we will have an update on what's going on with inflation. Some good news for a change. It's probably a major reason the stock market is showing some incredibly positive activity right now. On the economic front, there's one word a lot of Democrats do not want to hear. It doesn't matter that it's coming from a Democrat president. Also, I mentioned the possibility of a hostage deal. Perhaps we could be days away from some good news there. We'll talk about this and much more as we continue our Tuesday broadcast. You know, it's good to hear some positive news for a change about what's going on with inflation. I mentioned the stock market quite thrilled, evidencing how investors are feeling about the news this morning. Wall Street Journal reporting inflation cooled to 3.2% last month, likely ending Fed rate hikes. That would be a good thing. Americans saw inflation cool last month, prices fell for gasoline, and as underlying price pressures eased. This inflation report strongly suggests the Federal Reserve concluded in July its historic interest rate increases and is likely to keep borrowing costs steady at the next meeting coming up December 12th and 13th. Consumer prices overall up 3.2% in October from a year earlier, a slower pace than in September, so-called core prices, which exclude volatile food and energy items, rising 4% on an annual basis, the smallest change since September 2021. That's a good thing. The fresh figures help reassure investors the Fed is likely done raising interest rates. Stock futures jumped. And government bond yields fell sharply in morning trading. In fact, I thought I would take a look now at what's going on on Wall Street. And the CNBC headline right now, stocks rally on soft inflation data. The Dow jumps 400 points. Wow, that's pretty significant. They are very much encouraged by what is likely to happen in terms of interest rates staying where they are to go into the new year. You certainly cannot beat that. So how do you feel about this? Are you 
to some measure encouraged that at least the increases are leveling off and we could be heading in the right direction. I would also add, and because I think it's very important to note this, and this is not to throw shade on Mr. Magoo, our president, or anything like that. It is to just say that what I've said all along, America works, period. We figure out ways to work through all kinds of adversity, and really left to itself, our economy will just work its way back into working. As long as the federal government doesn't screw things up, which they have a habit of doing, by the way. Speaking of, I love this story, Breitbart. Democrats want to throw Bidenomics into the dumpster. Well, I cannot imagine why they would want to do that. Democrats would reportedly advise President Joe Biden to heave so-called Bidenomics into the dumpster after polling shows. Get a load of this. Just 14% of voters say Biden has made them better off. 14%. Folks, I've got to tell you, if I had such a dismal record in this area, I might go home myself. 14%. The reported unsolicited advice signals infighting among Democrats and the president's uphill battle to convince voters he deserves re-election, which we know he doesn't. Perhaps the most overwhelming economic messaging advice I picked up from Democrats was for him to heave Bidenomics into the dumpster. That's from Politico's Jonathan Martin, writing this yesterday after interviewing dozens of Democrats and never-Trump Republicans. The White House defines Bidenomics with three pillars intended to cure long-standing challenges that held America back, including rising inequality and disinvestment from communities across the country. What are these three wonderful pillars? Making smart public investments in America. Let me translate each one of these for you. Spending more money that we do not have on worthless projects. That's what that comes down to. Number two, empowering and educating workers to grow the middle class. What a bunch of claptrap. How do you do that? I mean, seriously. And third, promoting competition to lower costs and help entrepreneurs and small business thrive. Really? Promoting competition? How does the government do that? You know, the best thing the government, again, can do in this area is to leave people alone. That's how you succeed at this. But we continue. Attempting to make voters believe something they don't is folly. Attaching your name to that strategy borders on masochistic. (laughs) That's actually what Jonathan Martin wrote of Biden's economic moniker. At a time when people are paying more for housing, gas, and groceries, focusing on job growth and the unemployment rate is ineffective. You think? (laughs) A survey recently found the president's Bidenomics policies are not working for even a quarter of Americans. According to a poll by Financial Times University, 
of Michigan's Ross School of Business. The poll is the latest negative poll for the president. 14% of voters say they're better off financially now than when Biden took office. Remember, I think it was Reagan who posed this question. Back during the Carter years, are you better off than you were four years ago? And of course, it's not just no, it's hell no. 70% of voters say Biden's economic policies had either hurt the economy or had no impact. And among the 70%, 33% said the president's policies hurt the economy a lot. So, anybody with any sense who would be an objective observer would conclude Bidenomics is a loser. It's not something that you want to talk about and promote because you'll really make yourself look like a total idiot promoting something that Americans know is a lie. Still to come in the broadcast, a possible hostage deal that could result in at least a few dozen hostages getting free from Hamas. Also, big demonstration in the nation's capital, this time for people supporting the state of Israel. Boy, isn't that miraculous? We'll deal with this and much more as we continue our Tuesday broadcast. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Back on the Vince Coakley radio program, we've had some really positive stories developing here, huh? The economy actually showing some sign of relief from inflation. And now we have this. The Jerusalem Post is reporting Israel is just days away from a hostage deal. Hamas pushing for a five-day truce. Of course, there's always a catch, isn't there? The truce should include a complete ceasefire and allow aid and humanitarian relief everywhere in the Gaza Strip. That's according to a spokesperson for Hamas's military wing. Now, this post story says Hamas and Israel are close to reaching a deal to exchange Palestinian prisoners for Israeli women and children held hostage by Hamas in Gaza. The Washington Post columnist David Ignatius reported on this, citing an unnamed high-ranking Israeli official. The armed wing of the Palestinian terrorist group Hamas said it told Qatari mediators the group was ready to release up to 70 women and children held in Gaza in return for a five-day truce with Israel. Now you have to ask yourself a question here. What's the purpose of this five-day truce? Well, a very skeptical me says there's a number of reasons they're trying to do this. One of them, I mean, obviously, they want some of these people free that they're trying to get in exchange. They also would come across as being somewhat reasonable by letting people out. There's 
points to be gained with many naive, idiotic people in the international community on that. But the cynical part of me also says this is also an opportunity to rearm and strategize for how to continue their terroristic war against Israel. There's no goodwill here. I don't think they give a rat's rear end about these people. The Palestinians. The spokesman for the Al-Qassam Brigades, the armed wing of Hamas, said in an audio recording posted on the group's Telegram channel, last week there was an effort from the Qatari brothers to release the enemy captives from women and children in exchange for release of 200 Palestinian children and 75 women detained by the enemy. Why don't they just do an even exchange? We're talking about 275 people. Let everybody go. See, this is another example of playing games. Because they want to continue to have leverage. The truce should include a complete ceasefire and allow aid and humanitarian relief everywhere in the Gaza Strip. The terrorist spokesman also accused Israel of procrastinating and evading the price of the deal. Of course, it's Israel's fault. (laughs) What's new? This is the narrative we continue to hear over and over from Hamas. This is what they do. A very interesting event is also taking place. You've seen all of these demonstrations taking place all around the country. Sadly, many of these demonstrations purported to be pro-Palestinian. Truth of the matter is, they're at the core anti-Israel. I don't say that lightly, and I'm not saying this as an advocate for Israel. I'm saying this just as a person who looks at this and recognizes this for what it is. Because at the core, these groups have a hostility toward Israel's existence. They do not want Israel to exist. So we've seen these demonstrations all around the country, in fact, all around the world. Interestingly enough, today, USA Today reports there will be a march for Israel drawing tens of thousands to Washington, D.C. They will march on the National Mall to show support for the military campaign against Hamas, demand the immediate release of hostages held in Gaza, and condemn an increase in anti-Semitic incidents across the nation and around the world. This is organized by the Jewish Federations of North America and the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations describing the effort as an opportunity for all Americans to come together in solidarity with the people of Israel to demonstrate our commitment to America's most important ally in the region. The Anti-Defamation League reported an immediate alarming spike in anti-Semitic incidents across the U.S. in just the first two weeks of the Israel-Hamas war. Triggered when Hamas militants slammed across the border into Israel on a violent rampage. 
Preliminary data showed incidents of harassment, vandalism, and assault increased by 400% during that period. From the same period a year ago, of the 312 incidents reported, 190 directly linked to the war in Israel and Gaza. So this is unmistakable. As for the war itself, about 200,000 Palestinians have streamed out of northern Gaza in the last 10 days, according to the UN. As Israeli troops battled militants around hospitals where thousands remain stranded with no electricity and dwindling supplies. And the flight to southern Gaza has overwhelmed UN-run shelters there. There's an average of one toilet for 160 people. My goodness. An estimated 1.5 million Palestinians, more than two-thirds of Gaza's population, have fled their homes. This going into a sixth week. I just want to throw out, this is not any profound observation or anything, and it's probably, I don't know, somewhere along the lines of the conversations that have taken place over decades. I'm sure this has come up before. But I was thinking this morning as I was doing my walk, I have an idea that I think ought to get more discussion. If these people are really really sick and tired of Israel and its so-called occupation. How about this? How about an international peacekeeping force in these areas? Get Israel out and put an international peacekeeping force there. And they have strict orders to keep Hamas and other terrorists under control. What do you think? Is this something that might be a viable idea. Love to get your thoughts as we continue our broadcast. Still to come, a major developments to promote the smooth flow of mail in this part of the country. We will delve into that and much more. Also, just a few minutes away, as I have told you earlier, some great items for F- Transformation Tuesday. I was about to say Faith Focus Friday. Man, do I wish this was Friday. I think many of you do as well as I tease people on this. I didn't want to talk, Bernie. I wanted to hear that groovy music. Who is this, by the way? Chuck Berry. Of course it is. That is some good stuff. I mean, it's pretty incredible. As we continue the Vince Coakley radio program, 52 minutes after the hour of 10 o'clock, and I told you we have some really good stuff coming up in the next hour with Transformation Tuesday. On the local front, Charlotte Observer has a really interesting story about Something underway here in Charlotte, in the Charlotte area. And this involves the post office. You know, it's kind of interesting to me here in the year 2023. We still have a postal service. It still exists. I wonder how, how, what the long-term future is for the post office. Nonetheless, 
Charlotte Observer reporting USPS opens one of the first mega regional distribution centers near Charlotte. It's a new massive Charlotte area postal distribution facility. It's one of two North Carolina sites that will be the backbone of the U.S. Postal Service's 10-year, $40 billion plan to modernize how mail is delivered across the country. How much more can you modernize this? I'm just curious. The Charlotte Regional Processing and Distribution Center is up and running. It's at 524 Scaly Bark Road in Gastonia, just west of Charlotte. One of the first regional plants to open in the U.S., and will be the template for 60 facilities planned nationwide. Think of this, how much money? We're talking about $40 billion to modernize. This is what they're going to put into this across the country. USPS spokesman Jeffrey Adams said this nearly 700,000 square foot center facility started operating in phases over the last couple of weeks. The Postal Service is competing for business, as you know, with FedEx, UPS, and other regional package carriers. And the Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy, saying our goal is to become the preferred delivery provider in the nation. We have to reconfigure a lot This project in Gastonia started about 15 months ago. Now getting mail from downtown Charlotte plants. Another North Carolina regional plant is planned in Greensboro. This is part of DeJoy's Delivering for America plan announced a couple of years ago to transform the postal service over the next 18 months. $200 million will be invested in North Carolina between the Gastonia and Greensboro plants and updating other sites. DeJoy declined to say how much will be invested in the Gastonia facility, but about half of that, $100 million, will be invested in the Gaston County Distribution Center and other facility upgrades in Charlotte. The new strategy will reduce redundant operations and transportation across the nation, saving us both time and money. Okay. His plan calls for closing many delivery units, annexes, and plants to instead create mega centers that process, sort, and send out mail for delivery under one roof. That includes operating 60 centralized centers equipped to handle the surging volume of packages since the pandemic. The aim to increase speed, reduce costs, and improve our service. Said it's not easy. We have old facilities, old equipment, built for 40 years ago. We're trying to modernize that. DeJoy took over during the pandemic. The Postal Service projected to run out of cash in 60 days then. Said his strategy has reduced projected losses from $160 billion to about $70 billion. Still, can you imagine losses that large? It's extraordinary. Quite extraordinary. Also, in the news, we told you about a very important vote on keeping the government going. Breitbart (laughs) has this headline, Mike Johnson's shutdown plan gets a hall pass from Furious Freedom Caucus. Furious Freedom Caucus. Members of the Conservative House Freedom Caucus took an official position against the two-tiered stopgap funding bill we told you about. 
aimed at averting a government shutdown just hours before it's set to come to the floor for a vote today. Mike Johnson, the new speaker, met with a group of conservative hardliners. Hardliners. I hate that word. This happened last night in hopes of selling the bill to skeptics. The group isn't pleased with the legislation, but doesn't plan to try to oust Johnson over the move. HFC members are furious. The legislation keeps 2023 funding levels intact. Johnson repeatedly argued the laddered continuing resolution with some funding lasting until January and the rest until February 2nd would prevent the House from being rolled by a sweeping omnibus spending bill from the Senate. Eight conservatives joined with Democrats in October to oust former Speaker Kevin McCarthy, citing his decision to bring up a resolution that extended current spending levels. So is this Kevin McCarthy 2.0? I think that's a fair question. Straight ahead on the broadcast, yes, we have it. It is Transformation Tuesday. A couple of items that will really inspire you. I promise. That much more as we continue the Vince Coakley radio program. It's news time. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. And welcome to our number two of the Vince Coakley radio program. In this hour, we have Transformation Tuesday. And I want to begin with a good friend of mine. He posted something the other day that really grabbed my attention, and I want to read part of this. I come today with my heart in my hand, honestly not sure I've ever shared something as pointed and potentially powerful as this, but here goes. It's long, but hang with me. Those who know me, those who know me the best, know my heart has been through the ringer the past few years. True confessions, I wouldn't trade it for the entire world. God's done a work in my heart that has humbled me. Again, I wouldn't want to escape the gauntlet, even if I could. It's where I needed to be. And now as I watch the events of the world unfold, I find myself weeping, sobbing nearly every day. I think of many with whom I am honored to sit, those who exist in the corners of our society, and my heart moves every single day. I found myself talking about the current season on the earth. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 3, When evening comes, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red in the morning. Today it will be stormy. For the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times, the seasons. It's often difficult to discern where we are, but I found myself sharing what I've been seeing over the past few years. I told this person, we're living in a season of apocalypse. Sounds far scarier than it actually is. That word apocalypse literally means the uncovering, the unveiling, the revelation. It means things that were once hidden are coming into the light, whether it's politicians, entertainers, business leaders, or ministers. 
the hidden is becoming known. I'm not going to read the rest of this because I want to hear from the heart of the person who wrote this because there's a purpose behind it. It's not just about knowing. And if I can just give you this exhortation because I was there as a person, a young teenager and preteen, obsessed with Bible prophecy. The, fo- the focus was on knowing, knowing these, you know, the events and how they're going to unfold. And I thought, boy, I'm going to have an edge over everybody else because I'm going to know what the ten toes are, who the Antichrist is, and all these other things. But I know my guest is not going there. He's more concerned about what God wants to do in us during this season. Am I correct? Bob Prater joining us on the broadcast again. Good morning. Welcome back, sir. Vincent Coakley, it is always, a, my gosh, and you set this thing up, and and I just, you know, I'm sitting here stunned at how good you are at what you do. So thank you. Well, thank you for your kind words, Bob. And I love what you go on to talk about, because in this season, you say there are things that will take place. And again, this is not so much so we can have the right information. There's a purpose here. What is, in your view, about ready to happen? I I believe that even as we're seeing the world blow, and listen to me, I'm, I'm in my late 60s. So I've been around a minute, and uh, and I've seen a lot of stuff in my life, but we're seeing things that I have never seen. And it's easy to get caught up in the fear. It's easy to get caught up in all of, and boy, those people that study Bible prophecy are having a field day today as they try to interpret. For me, this has always been a little more personal. God has done a work in my in my heart, in my life, over the last few years. And as I began to understand the season that we're in, which is truly a season of apocalypse, I mean, everything that has been hidden is coming to light. Um, everything, the, the backroom deals, the, the this, the that, we're seeing it. We're hearing it in real time scandal after scandal after scandal at a level that perhaps we have never seen. Well, that's because of the season. I I found myself weeping. I I, I really do sit with those who are in the margins, those who are in the corners of society that that are often rejected. Um, That's what I'm pleased and privileged to do. It's how God made me. Actually, it's not, I, I know it's how he made me, but it's how he's grown me over the years. It's not who I've always been. I was the most combative, argumentative, have-to-be-right person, and I will beat you to a pulp to make you see my view. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I know that, listen, there are people, everybody listening can relate, because it's where we all, it's where we all live, right? <laughs> You're not, abs- so much, not You're, so much anymore. I, I certainly know that. And... Where God wants to take take us at this point, you use a very important word, and that is reconciliation. Tell me about that. I found myself uh, sobbing uh, a few weeks ago before the Lord. Um, I, I see, I see the world, and it just it overwhelms me. I think about my kids. I think about my about my grandkids. I think about all of it, and uh, and I found myself sobbing. 
And I heard that still small voice that I have known since I was a 15-year-old come to me and say, Bob, this season, the season of apocalypse is necessary because it's preparation for the next season. So as I, as I do, I've got kind of a journalist mind like you. I asked the question, oh, really? So what is the next season? And very, very clearly, he said, uh, Bob, the next season will be marked by two things, reconciliation and healing. That's it. A season of uncovering followed by a season of reconciliation and healing. And Vince, this is important because healing cannot take place without reconciliation. Mm-hmm. It's got to come first. And, uh, and so I began to, to look at that word, reconciliation, and it's a big one. It is a big one. Uh, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. So now we know Jesus came to reconcile us back. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So wait a minute. He's giving that ministry of reconciliation to us. Then he tells us, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, and here's how he did it. Not counting people's sins against them. Not counting their sins. The very thing that separated us in the garden is the very thing that God stands up in the form of Jesus and says, no more. I'm not counting anymore. And if he's not counting, why are we? Here's my thing. We live in a moment where gotcha happens every, it it seems to happen every 30 seconds, another gotcha moment. And we've got, we've got people who have, their careers are built on uncovering gotchas so that people can feel good about themselves and gloat and all the things that go with. <laughs> Guys, we have got to put that down. We've got to put that down. He's not counting people's sins against them, their wrongs. So who am I to count yours? Who, are, who am I to count anyone's? And so we go forward giving everybody a clean slate. Uh, The Bible says that his mercies are new every morning. If his mercies are new every morning, the least I can do is have renewed mercy when I wake up and give people a fresh start. So here we are. We're entering this season, and it's coming with speed. But reconciliation has to come first. And the way we reconcile, we just stop all the craziness. We stop calling each other out for every little thing, and we begin to live life together. We reach across aisles. We, we reach across disagreement. We reach across countries' boundaries, and we begin to do the right thing, which is taking care of one another. That's a tall order, and I want to continue to talk about this. You were able to hold on through the break, right, Bob? Of course. Uh I want to develop this a little further because it's really important that people understand the how. You know, I've had several conversations with people recently, and, you know, some of these, you know, people will say, you know, this is all about being a good person. You know, it doesn't matter what you believe, your religion. I want to go into this because this is vitally important to understand because if we don't have the power to do what Bob is talking about, this all... It just becomes academic conversation, which I'm not interested in. I'm too old for that. 
<laughs> we'll talk about this and much more as we continue Transformation Tuesday, the Vince Coakley radio program. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Back of the Vince Coakley Radio Program, we're talking about this very important subject of reconciliation. And Bob hit this on the head. I mean, hey, I'm in the news business, talk business, you know, this whole gotcha mentality. It's everywhere. And, you know, this is really important when Bob talks about things being revealed, unveiled. The whole purpose is not so things are exposed, so then we can pounce. The goal with our creator, our God, is for restoration, for reconciliation to take place. Um, I want to just very briefly read one verse, Romans 1.16, ESV. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is something I think so many people do not understand about our Christian gospel, Bob, and that is... Everybody, it's so many people have the idea, well, the whole idea is just to try to be a good person. And, and people miss the point that if we could be good people, that if we could live up to what Jesus is talking about, we wouldn't need him. And the whole point behind this is we need what you're talking about, Bob. If we're talking about being ministers of reconciliation, we have to be empowered to do that. Isn't that correct, Bob? Yeah, you're you're one hundred percent correct. We we've got to we've got to have the Spirit of God inside us. I one of my favorite scriptures is First John four seven and eight. It says, "Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, not from God. Love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God." This is such a good litmus test, by the way. And then it says, "He who does not love." does not know God, because God is love. God is love. Love is God. So yeah, as, as we enter into this season of reconciliation where we are no longer concerned with the wrong things that other people have done, and we begin to find a way towards healing, uh, I, I think the two things in our, in our tool belt that we've got to really employ, number one is empathy, We've got to be able to feel what other people feel. And, uh, and that means even those who have wronged us, even those who have done bad things to us, everybody has a backstory. I mean, I grew up a certain, I grew up a certain sort of way, and, and there was a lot of hatred in my home, uh, a lot of racial hatred, a lot of, a lot of anger, um, a lot of violence. It's just how things went. Uh, and somehow the Lord found me when I was a boy, 15 years old, he found me. And, and my life has not been the same. But empathy, I've got to remember where I came from. I've got to remember who I've been. And I've got to remember that everybody's fighting a battle that I don't know anything about. And then secondly, I've got to employ kindness. It's so easy. 
It's so easy to give a smile to someone at a grocery store. It's so easy to hold a door. It's so easy to say, so how are you today? It's so easy to compliment others. It costs us nothing, but in our, in our twisted up realities inside ourselves, we think it's going to cost us everything if we say a good word about someone. <laughs> it does not diminish me one bit to tell someone that I am completely amazed by them. It doesn't diminish me a bit to pay someone else a compliment. As I've Even. lost myself in this, honest to goodness, I've found who God made me to be. Mm. Yeah, I want to touch on something quickly about this, Bob, because we're in an atmosphere, and, and, I've, and I especially see this in the political realm, where yeah. especially people who I thought were, quote, on my side politically, I now recognize something is horribly wrong. We're at a point where people are, they have completely turned on empathy. It is, it is thought to be not masculine or manly to have, have care and love and concern for people. You just need to be this bombastic, loud, uh, fire-breathing, hard-charging warrior. Right. And, and that's never going to serve us well. I mean, it will serve it will serve the person well in the short term. We've seen it. We've seen it throughout our lives as, pe- as, as people have bullied their way uh, to, to great heights. Um, but that never, ever ends well. It just doesn't. And uh, the ability to feel beyond ourselves, beyond our own experience, and to recognize that others are going through the gauntlet as well is just it's just elementary. We, we're, we're not going to find reconciliation and healing without empathy. Yeah, you're right. It's under attack. I'm even seeing certain elements of the church who are saying that empathy equals weakness. You've got to be kidding me. And I've seen people even saying that the Bible does not speak. You've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. It's like I want to say, get out of here with that heresy, because this is all about laying our lives down for one another. Jesus showed us the way, and we are to continue in the way that he showed us. It's just how things work. And even toward our enemies, Bob. Especially towards our enemies. Not even. Especially towards those who have wronged us. We've got to be able to... Now, listen, I, I... it doesn't justify anything, but I can certainly feel uh, like like even 9-11. I mean, I know why it happened. I understand what happened in the Middle East that, that, that was the prelude to that. It doesn't justify it, not in the least, but I at least have an understanding that injustice has taken place on this earth, and people rise up and do things. They do stupid things, crazy things, um, and... And I've got to be able to to think in a nuanced manner. Hey, everything is not black and white. That person at the at the at the restaurant that treated me terribly, I've got to recognize that they probably had a real rough morning. And so I give them grace. It's not about me. No, it's not about me. Yep. It's a it's about why I'm here. And I am here to be that voice. I am here to be the one that the broken can count on. The greatest thing that ever happened to me once, I walked out of a restaurant and there was a homeless woman who happened to be deaf. 
And as I, I, I had encountered her before, and I, I prayed with her, I'd given her money, and and I was dressed nicely because I'd been on I'd been on TV that day, uh, so I had I had good clothes on instead of what I normally wear. And as I walked out of the restaurant, she walked up, and in her in her broken language said, "You look nice today." Well, I prayed with her. I gave her some food. I bought her a meal, and then I got in my car and I started to weep. And I said, "Lord." The wounded, the broken, know me. They know who I am. That's what I'm after. Yep. I could care less if the President of the United States knows Bob Prater. But the, but the woman who is homeless that lives on the corner, yes, yeah, she's going to know me. I That's hear you. I don't doubt that one bit, Bob. We're up against a hard break here. It, it's always a blessing talking with you because you, you're one of those people, especially during the seasons of life that I've been through the last few years, uh, it means so much to connect with somebody real who's living it and has the scars to show for it. So, Bob Prater, thanks a lot for coming on the broadcast again, and we'll have to talk again off air very, very soon. Uh, God bless you, brother. I would, love that. I would love that. I sure appreciate you, Vince. Thanks for having me on. Bob Prater, ladies and gentlemen, I hope this was an encouragement, a blessing, and a challenge to you as it was to me. If you have not been inspired enough, this I came across a few days ago, and it's absolutely extraordinary. Ayan Hersi Ali. It's a name you may not be familiar with, but you will be now. And you will come to understand who this person is and her extraordinary story. And I think it's especially timely based on what's going on in our world. She has written a piece, and it's very simply, and I don't want you to be thrown off by this it's called why i am now a christian atheism can't equip us for civilizational war this is not some little cheesy sunday school presentation and you'll understand what i'm talking about this woman goes deep and i do mean very deep in 2002 i discovered a 1927 lecture by bertrand russell entitled Why I'm Not a Christian. It did not cross my mind as I read it that one day nearly a century after he delivered it to the South London branch of the National Secular Society, I would be compelled to write an essay with precisely the opposite title. The year before, I publicly condemned the terrorist attacks of the 19 men who had hijacked passenger jets and crashed them into the Twin Towers in New York. They had done it in the name of my religion, Islam. I was a Muslim then. I think you can see already how this story is very different than where you thought this may go. She continues. I was a Muslim then, although not a practicing one. If I truly condemned their actions, then where did that leave me? The underlying principle that justified the attacks was religious, after all. The idea of jihad or holy war against the infidels. Was it possible for me, as for many members of the Muslim community, simply to distance myself 
from the actions and its horrific results. At the time, there were many eminent leaders in the West, politicians, scholars, journalists, and other experts who insisted the terrorists were motivated by reasons other than the ones that they and their leader, Osama bin Laden, had articulated so clearly. So Islam had been, actually had an alibi. This excuse-making was not only condescending toward Muslims, it also gave many Westerners a chance to retreat into denial. Blaming the errors of U.S. foreign policy was easier than contemplating the possibility we were confronted with a religious war. We've seen a similar tendency in the past five weeks as millions of people sympathetic to the plight of Gazans seek to rationalize the October 7th terrorist attacks as a justified response to the policies of the Israeli government. When I read Russell's lecture, I found my cognitive dissonance easing. easing. It was a relief to adopt an attitude of skepticism towards religious doctrine, discard my faith in God, and declare that no such entity existed. I hope you're noticing she's transitioning from Muslim to atheist. Best of all, I could reject the existence of hell and the danger of everlasting punishment. Russell's assertion that religion is based primarily on fear resonated with me. I'd lived for too long in terror of all the gruesome punishments that awaited me. While I'd abandoned all the rational reasons for believing in God, that irrational fear of hellfire still lingered. Russell's conclusion thus came as something of a relief. When I die, I shall rot. To understand why I became an atheist 20 years ago, you first need to understand the kind of Muslim I had been. I was a teenager when the Muslim Brotherhood penetrated my community in Nairobi, Kenya in 1985. I don't think I even understood religious practice before the coming of the Brotherhood. I'd endured the rituals of ablutions, prayers, and fasting as tedious and pointless. The preachers of the Muslim Brotherhood changed this. They articulated a direction, the straight path, a purpose to work towards admission into Allah's paradise after death, a method, the Prophet's instruction manual of do's and don'ts, the halal and the haram. As a detailed supplement to the Quran, the Hadith spelled out how to put into practice the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, God and the devil. The Brotherhood preachers left nothing to the imagination. They gave us a choice, strive to live by the Prophet's manual and reap the glorious rewards in the hereafter. On this earth, meanwhile, the greatest achievement possible is to die as a martyr for the sake of Allah. The alternative, indulging in the pleasures of the world, was to earn Allah's wrath and be condemned to an eternal life in hellfire. Some of the worldly pleasures they were decrying, including reading novels, listening to music, dancing, and going to the cinema, all of which, I was ashamed to admit, I adored. The most striking quality of the Muslim Brotherhood was their ability to transform me and my fellow teenagers from passive believers into activists almost overnight. We didn't just say things or pray for things, we did things. As girls, we donned the burqa and swore off Western fashion and makeup. The boys cultivated their facial hair to the greatest extent possible. They wore the white dress like Taub worn in Arab countries or had their trousers shortened above their ankle bones. 
We operated in groups and volunteered our services in charity to the poor, the old, the disabled, and the weak. We urged fellow Muslims to pray and demanded that non-Muslims convert to Islam. I will finish her story coming up after the break, right here on the Vince Coakley radio program. It's an extraordinary story. <laughs> Our phone number is 704-570-1110 on the Vince Coakley radio program. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Back to the Vince Coakley radio program. We're sharing a powerful, powerful piece. It's written by a woman with a very powerful journey. Ayan Hersey. Ali, and I pick up her story, her extraordinary story. During Islamic study sessions, we share with the preacher in charge of the session our worries. For instance, what should we do about the friends we loved and felt loyal to, but who refused to accept our da'wah, invitation of the faith? In response, we were reminded repeatedly about the clarity of the prophet's instructions. We were told in no uncertain terms, we could not be loyal to Allah and Muhammad, while also maintaining friendships and loyalty toward the unbelievers. If they explicitly rejected our summons to Islam, we were to hate and curse them. Here, a special hatred was reserved for one subset of unbeliever, the Jew. We cursed the Jews multiple times a day and expressed horror, disgust, and anger at the litany of offenses he had allegedly committed. The Jew had betrayed our prophet. He had occupied the Holy Mosque in Jerusalem. He continued to spread corruption of the heart, mind, and soul. You can see why, to someone who had been through such a religious schooling, atheism seemed so appealing. Bertrand Russell offered a simple, zero-cost escape from an unbearable life of self-denial and harassment of other people. For him, there was no credible case for the existence of God, religion. Russell argued was rooted in fear. Fear is the basis of the whole thing. Fear of the mysterious, fear of defeat, fear of death. As an atheist, I thought I would lose that fear. I also found an entirely new circle of friends as different from the preachers of the Muslim Brotherhood as one could imagine. The more time I spent with them, people such as Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, the more confident I felt I had made the right choice, for the atheists were clever. They were also a great deal of fun. So what changed? Why do I call myself a Christian now? Part of the answer is global. Western civilizations under threat from three different but related forces. The resurgence of great power authoritarianism and expansionism in the forms of the Chinese Communist Party and Vladimir Putin's Russia. The rise of global Islamism, which threatens to mobilize a vast population against the West. And the viral spread of woke ideology which is eating into the moral fiber of the next generation. We endeavor to fend off these threats with modern secular tools, military, economic, diplomatic, and technological efforts to defeat, bribe, persuade, appease, or surveil. And yet with every round of conflict, we find ourselves losing ground. We're either running out of money with our national debt in the tens of trillions of dollars, or we're losing our lead in the technological race with China. But we can't fight off these formidable forces unless we can answer the question, what is it that unites us? The response that God is dead seems insufficient. 
So too does the attempt to find solace in the rules-based liberal international order. The only credible answer, I believe, lies in our desire to uphold the legacy of the Judeo-Christian tradition. That legacy consists of an elaborate set of ideas and institutions designed to safeguard human life, freedom, and dignity. From the nation, state, and the rule of law, the institutions of science, health, and learning. As Tom Holland has shown in his marvelous book, Dominion, all sorts of apparently secular freedoms of the market, of conscience, and of the press find their roots in Christianity. Hmm. And so I've come to realize Russell and my atheist friends failed to see the wood for the trees. The wood is the civilization built on the Judeo-Christian traditions. It's the story of the West, warts and all. Russell's critique of those contradictions in Christian doctrine is serious, but it's also too narrow in scope. For instance, he gave his lecture in a room full of former or at least doubting Christians in a Christian country. Think about how unique that was nearly a century ago and how rare it is in non-Western civilizations. Could a Muslim philosopher stand before any audience in a Muslim country then or now and deliver a lecture with the title, Why I'm Not a Muslim? In fact, a book with that title exists, written by an ex-Muslim. The author published it in America under the pseudonym Abin Warak. It would have been too dangerous to do otherwise. To me, this freedom of conscience and speech is perhaps the greatest benefit of Western civilization. It does not come naturally to man. It's the product of centuries of debate within Jewish and Christian communities. It was these debates that advanced science and reason, diminished cruelty, suppressed superstitions, and built institutions to order and protect life while guaranteeing freedom to many people as possible. Unlike Islam, Christianity outgrew its dogmatic stage. It became increasingly clear Christ's teaching implied not only a circumscribed role for religion as something separate from politics, it also implied compassion for the sinner and humility for the believer. Yet I would not be truthful if I attributed my embrace of Christianity solely to the realization that atheism is too weak and device of a doctrine to fortify us against our menacing foes. I've also turned to Christianity because I ultimately found life without any spiritual solace unendurable, indeed very nearly self-destructive. Atheism failed to answer a simple question. What is the meaning and purpose of life? What is it? Russell, another activist, Atheists believe that with rejection of God, we'd enter an age of reason, intelligent humanism. But the God hole, the void left by the retreat of the church, has merely been filled by a jumble of irrational, quasi-religious dogma. The result is a world where modern cults prey on the dislocated masses, offering them spurious reasons for being in action, mostly by engaging in virtue-signaling theater on behalf of a victimized minority or our supposedly doomed planet. The line often attributed to G.K. Chesterton has turned into a prophecy. When men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. <laughs> There's more to this. We may share the last couple of paragraphs of this tomorrow. I just thought you would enjoy this. If you want to look for it and share it on social media, do it. It's powerful. 
Why I Am Now a Christian, Ayan Hersi Ali. And I love that she drives home the point, why are we here? That's the central question. And that's where we need to begin. We're out of time for today's broadcast. I hope it was in some way encouraging. Have yourselves a great day and God bless you. Adios.